There's a lot going on. There's probably more going on right now than just about any time that I can remember. And so rather than talk for a long time, I'd like to hear what's on your mind, except l let me just mention uh, the Libya and Middle Eastern situation with you very briefly, and then a little bit about, <coughs> about where we are in the next week or so, and then another looming, uh, I think you could describe it as a crisis when we uh, have to address the raising of the debt ceiling, which you're all very familiar with. Uh, first of all, I think you have to put this Libyan thing in the context of, a, of the tectonic change, uh, the historic change that's taking place in the Middle East that they like to call the Arab Spring. Uh, not that long ago, just about three months ago, there was a young man who was a college graduate in a small town in southern Tunisia who um, couldn't get a job tried to sell fruits and vegetables, and he was going out to, with his cart of fruit and vegetables. The police stopped him, took his fruits, a lot of it, and he was humiliated. And he doused himself with gasoline and lit a match. And that lit Tunisia, Egypt, all of the things that are going on in the world. Um, obviously, um, the, that part of the world was ripe for it, but I have yet to meet someone who predicted that these events would take place, and I'm not one of those either. Um, and I think we have to recognize that these countries are very different. Uh, the Arab world is as different as our hemisphere is, probably more different in some ways. I think that there's every opportunity for Egypt and Tunisia to make a transition into democratic uh, governments. It'll stumble along, but I think they have every opportunity to do so. Other countries like Yemen, I don't know what happens in Yemen. It's basically a tribal country that was cobbled together by the British many years ago. It's been split into North and South Yemen. The Egyptians tried to, to absorb it and then decided they didn't need that kind of problem. And, uh, and so, it's very difficult. Libya, obviously, is a tribal country uh, as well. And uh, in Syria, uh, I don't like to predict, and I hope that I'm wrong, but I think it's very likely that uh, uh, Bashar Assad will uh, repress by any means possible the demonstrations that are taking place. I think he'll cling to power the same way that Gaddafi is uh, tried to. So. It's a very different uh, kind of landscape, and of course our attention is focused on Libya because of the battle, American air, airplanes and weapon systems are involved. Um, first of all, I think it's important to point out that if oh, a little over three weeks ago we had declared a no-fly zone, Gaddafi would either be in Venezuela with Hugo Chavez, in hell with Stalin and Hitler, or he would be in the International Criminal Court. That was a great opportunity. We didn't take it. And then, of course, as you know, the fortunes of the rebels were reversed, and then uh, they reversed again. And I'll talk about again about where we are, where they are today. Um, and yet, at the same time, I strongly support the president's decision uh, to declare the no-fly zone and and 
the ambiguous, there's a lot of ambiguity about exactly what the mission is, but it did prevent what would have been a massacre in Benghazi. I mean, you know, all you had to do was listen to what Gaddafi said. He said, we'll go house to house and we'll kill whoever we think uh, are our opponents. So it, it prevented another Srebrenica. It's a city of 300,000 people. I don't know how many he would have killed, but it, certainly he has never shown mercy in the past. You might recall that uh, a number of years ago there was an uprising in the prison, so they just went in and killed a thousand people. Uh, he has the blood of 190 Americans who were in Pan Am 103 on his hands, which we now have uh, even more compelling evidence that he orchestrated. So uh, that's why I'm a little intrigued when I keep hearing, seeing on Fox and other places, well, we don't know who the rebels are, we don't know who they are. Well, they sure as hell aren't Gaddafi. Uh, and we don't know who will come after. We didn't know who was going to come after Hitler. So uh, I'm concerned about who they are, but I've been briefed, and uh, they have a website, by the way. You might go up on it. Uh, one, of them, one of them was a former, the leader is a former minister of justice. The French have recognized them. An Arab country, Gutter, has recognized them. So, uh, but what, unfortunately, the president seems to be as intent or more intent on getting out of this than seeing it through to a successful conclusion. As of 6 o'clock this morning, American air, uh, air power is out of uh, Libya, right when the rebels are being driven further and further back. I, I would suggest at exactly the wrong time. And yes, the Qaddafi forces have adopted some pickup trucks and rather than tanks and all that. But you know, um, you can tell pretty well when a pickup truck is going east or whether it's going west. Uh, so, um, and this whole issue of the, that now has dominated the news for the last 18 hours that the president has uh, authorized covert uh, action on the ground. Well, um, we found out in Afghanistan, you do need people on the ground to identify targets. Um, I'm not particularly opposed to that. Uh, there are other countries like the British that have similar capabilities that are already in there. I think the key here is, are we going to do what's necessary to take the anti-Qaddafi rebels all the way to Tripoli and eject him? The worst scenario would be a stalemate where Qaddafi remains in power in the East and the West and the uh, anti-Qaddafi forces uh, in the East, because I can assure you that Gaddafi would, as you, I'm sure you know, would do everything in his power to s seek revenge on us through support of terrorist organizations, which he has done before. And it would be a huge setback in a broad variety of ways. And if his, he succeeds in surviving, it does send a message to people like Bashar Assad and others that uh, you don't want to make the mistake that the uh, Egyptian army did and that Mubarak did. So it's a very important time here. And could I just finally read back the big picture? The one thing that they want in Tunisia and the one thing they want in Egypt is American investment. We could have uh, free trade agreements with them. We could have trade preference agreements with them. They are very skeptical about us in Egypt because they think that we supported Mubarak for too long. They're not interested in us dictating to them 
what they should do, but they sure do want our economic assistance and help. And whether these uh, new governments, as they come into being, will succeed or fail will be directly related to the economy. I was in uh, Tunis, uh, and a young woman who was a human rights um, advocate said to me, said, President, uh, said, Senator McCain, we are not worried about the first election. We're worried about the second election. If the first election elects a government and that government fails to provide jobs and economic growth, then the second election will be taken over by the extremists. By the way, an interesting encounter with the young people who orchestrated the uh, the uprising in the square in Cairo. Uh, we were at a meeting, a young man pulled out his Blackberry and said, <coughs> Senator McCain, I can get 200,000 people in the square in three hours. Facebook and Twitter have had a huge impact on this whole thing. Social networking is a phenomena. Another young man in Tunisia said that the hero, the national hero of Tunisia is a man named Mark Zuckerberg. And, and, and it's true, and it's true. So uh, these are, are very interesting times uh, in the world, and I'm not sure, in fact, I am, I am absolutely convinced that this Arab Spring may not be uh, confined just to the Arab world. I think the Chinese are a lot more nervous than they were, to wit, the way they cracked down so quickly on any dissent. I think Vladimir Putin is a little less comfortable, and he's still going to have his hands full with his part of Russia, which is Muslim. And uh, so we may see these changes not only in the Arab world, but in other parts of the world uh, as well. So they are interesting, challenging times, but what an opportunity, what an opportunity to give people a chance at democracy and freedom, something that we've always asserted is everyone's God-given rights. Um, on, on the, on the uh, impasse or lack of progress on the, the budget talks, um, I was told last night, it was in the paper this morning, that <clears throat> they may be moving towards an agreement of $31 billion um, that uh, naturally was broadcast by the gift that keeps on giving Joe Biden. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, so, uh, I'm not sure if that's exactly right because, as you know, there are some certain policy positions that the House has as well as budgetary. I also don't know if it will satisfy our conservative Republicans that were elected in the last election in November. You know, we have a tendency sometimes, I think, to forget about elections. It was a shellacking, as the President described it. And a lot of these uh, new Republican members of Congress feel very strongly that uh, they weren't sit there, sent to here to Washington to make significant compromises. And I understand that, and I appreciate it. And so um, we want to be reasonable, but I also think that for us to start compromising away what would be in the view of the independent voter, which is the voter that decides elections now, that we are just back to the old game of Washington compromising I think would be a, a very serious mistake. Um, I think a real crunch is going to come when it comes debt limit time to, re, to raise the debt limit. The one thing that's hard for us to do is to go back to our constituents and explain to them why it's necessary to continue to raise the national debt. And 
we are, there are explanations, as we all know. There are uh, non-discretionary programs that have to continue to um, increase in size because <coughs> of, for reasons beyond our control. But um, a, lot of, a lot of Americans, would understandably, uh, do not uh, uh <coughs> support another increase in the debt limit unless they see a path to a balanced budget. I think that would be the key to a compromise that would allow us to get the votes of uh, these new um, Republicans. And we've got three of them, by the way, in Arizona that came brand new. And I, listen, I pay a lot of attention to them. Um, finally, could I say I, <coughs> um, on the issue of elections, I think that uh, depending on what happens in the next six months or so, I think Republicans have a real good chance to regain control of the of the Senate. Um, I think when you look at the numbers, 23 to 10, that indicates that, and you know the the North Dakota seat and all that. I mean, you are familiar with all those seats, as I am. But I think that we have to understand that that same independent voter that 2008 voted strongly for. President Obama switched uh, dramatically in 2010, uh, I think indicating um, how quickly those numbers can change in one direction or another. Everybody looks at Arizona as a Republican state. We're now basically one-third, one-third, one-third. And the greatest increase in voter registration, as we all know, everywhere is the independent voter. So I, I, so I think we have to, to understand that why they voted the way they did in 2008, why they voted the way they did it in 2010, and what we need to do to try to keep their allegiance in 2012. And I would remind you um, that the object of elections is to win majorities so we can govern, not to prove that we are some kind of litmus testers that <coughs> have to stand up for a hard rock uh, principle that would not attract the uh, support of a majority uh, of voters. So um, these, as I said, are the most interesting times. But I do also think that the American people understand that unless we do something different than the way we've been doing things, we are facing a crisis of proportions the likes of which none of us have ever seen. There is no doubt that we are headed for a physical train wreck. And so it does require drastic action. I, I don't want to take a shot at the president, but I have to say that I have been disappointed that the president has not gotten more into the negotiations and the co national conversation. and. The, I, I'm glad he gave a speech on energy yesterday, and I'm glad again that we're becoming energy independent very soon. Aren't you glad to hear that one again? <laughs> uh, but, it, but I think that it would be helpful if the president got into the nitty-gritty, frankly, the way that Bill Clinton did after the 1992 uh, elections, yeah, and the, when, when we came, some, came to some serious agreements with President Clinton, and we did get to a balanced budget, indeed a surplus at that time. And we reformed welfare. We did several other things. But one of the reasons for that is still, I've been in the room with Bill Clinton many times, and I still think he was the smartest guy in the room, no matter, uh, no matter who was there. So with that, I'd like to thank the Ripon Society for um, 
I don't, I don't I, the classic case of misjudgment to have Timmons says that <coughs> But uh, um, other than that, I'd like to congratulate you on your good work, and I'd like to thank you and uh, respond to any questions or comments or insults that you might have. Thank you very much.